Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today we're discussing the ongoing attempts to save Simon Frazier University's football program. The BC Lions and the Calgary Stampeders unveiling new jerseys. U-Sports rosters for the 2023 East-West Bowl. The Hamilton Tiger Cats adding Darren Flutie to their wall of honor. And the Riders signing Kean Schaefer-Baker to a two-year contract extension. But first... Three Down Nation has reported the top 15 highest paid quarterbacks for the upcoming CFL season. This was the first installment in a series that will cover every position group in the Three Down League. Three Down has also put out the top 15 highest paid running backs and on Wednesday revealed the top 20 highest paid receivers. Of the 15 quarterbacks on the initial list, who in your opinion is the best bargain and why? Well, I'm going to give my honorable mention to Dane Evans, who took a massive pay cut to join the BC Lions. He'll make 94000 hard this year with a potential maximum value of $151,000. But for me, just by virtue of him being the starter, I'm going to take Chad Swag Kelly of the Toronto Argonauts. He is due only $87,000 in hard money. Can reach about a quarter of a million with his playtime, but... I don't think that that play time, some, some of it is very realistic. Some of it is not. Um, for instance, he gets $15,000 if he throws for 5,000 yards. I mean, he, he has to have a heck of a season to throw for that much. So for me, for what the Argos are, are getting, which is their new number one quarterback, obviously it remains to be seen if Chad Kelly will succeed. The, cha- the sample size is very small. He started one game last year at the end of the year. Looked pretty good through three touchdown passes. And then he played a little bit of that great cup game, had one great run to prolong a drive. But to me, when you're looking at this this team, it almost reminds me of Nathan Rourke a year ago in BC. The Lions were not paying Nathan Rourke a lot of money, and that allowed them to really invest in that defensive line, to really put great weapons around Rourke. And the Argos, to me, have done a similar thing here. Yes, they lost McLeod Bethel-Thompson to the USFL, but... They've gone ahead and they've given huge, huge pay raises to guys like Robbie Smith, Curly Gittins Jr., a lot of key players who have stayed with that team. And they've also managed to keep like Andrew Harris in tow. If you're paying Chad Kelly like a normal starter, there's no way you can give uh, A.J. Olette a bump. There's no way that you can keep Andrew Harris in the backfield. So to me, for the benefit of everywhere else on the roster that Toronto's been able to invest, the answer is Chad Kelly is the best bargain. I think you're absolutely right there, Hodge. You can't deny just based on the cost. But with Chad Kelly, you have uncertainty because you don't know what he is yet. There's some guys that you do know what they are who are not making very much money. I'll give a lo- some love to a guy who I have not given very much love to over the last little bit, and that's Vernon Adams Jr. in BC. Right now, he is eighth. On this list of quarterbacks, he's said to make $285,000 in hard money next year. His maximum value is only $350,000 next year, which is less than the hard money that guys like Cody Fajardo, Taylor Cornelius, and Jake Mayer can make next year. Vernon Adams Jr. has shown he can be a very effective quarterback when he's running hot in this league. 
And he deserves to be paid above guys like Cornelius and Mayer, in my mind, just based on what he's done in the past. He's not making nearly as much money as them. I think that's a real steal for the Lions. There's some concerns, obviously, going from that bargain basement deal contract that Rourke was on last year that you're paying more money to the quarterback position that's going to take away from other elements of the roster. Well, they're still getting a steal of a deal with VA, and that's allowing them to keep a lot of the pieces around him. My honorable mention is going to be Swag Kelly. The issue I have is we're talking about bargains, and we don't necessarily know for sure, as much as I'm hyped about Swag Kelly season coming upon us in the CFL, what we're going to get from Mr. Kelly in 2023. It looks like he has some great upside, but oftentimes when there's a lot of hype, I think we can forget that it takes a lot to be a starting quarterback in the CFL, and Kelly already thinks he has a bleep contract he maybe insert the poop emoji there in terms of what he said about his contract right now so he's kind of upset coming into the season and he's going to want to prove that he could earn more money in the future with the Argos or elsewhere in the CFL or potentially the NFL he still thinks he has a shot to go back down there so Kelly's my honorable mention and the guy that I'm going to go with might surprise some people but it's going to be Cody Fajardo with the Montreal Alouettes and part of that is due to you know what you're getting with Cody Fajardo. This is a guy who led the Riders to the top spot in the West Division in 2019, the West Final in 2021, played on a banged-up knee last year, which Jason Moss told me at the CFL Combine is back to 100%, and you're getting him for less than a lot of these other starters, let's say like a Jake Mayer, with the Calgary Stampeders, and Fajardo has way more starts and has a great winning record throughout his CFL career to date. $371,000 in hard money with $54,000 available in playtime bonuses, which he should get if he starts all 18 games. It could be chipped down a little bit if he is sidelined with injury, obviously, or perhaps the Alouettes lock up the East Division or a playoff spot early, and they decide to rest him for a week or two. So, we're looking at Fajardo moving from the West Division, which for a number of years now has been the best. Yes, West is best. Going to the East Division, and although he doesn't have Geno Lewis catching balls there, I think the Alouettes are somewhat underrated. I just need to see him and Jason Moss be able to mix Fajardo's play style with Moss's offense. That is the one holdback or holdup that I have for really going hard on the Alouettes' chances to win the East in 2023. But I think Fajardo's contract is a relative value compared to the other, let's say, upper echelon starters in the league who are proven. You look at Trevor Harris and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, for example. He's going to make $500,000, and his career win-loss record is right around the 500 mark. Cody Fajardo's career win-loss record is, I believe, upwards of – the six or even 700 mark. Like he has a great win-loss record. So for that reason and the ones that I laid out as well, I think Fajardo is the best bargain going into 23. Well, and we know obviously Fajardo is going to have a better offensive line this year in Montreal. Not sure about the receiving core there, but with the, the running back group they have, William Standback, they've got Jeshwin Antwi out of the University of Calgary. They've got Walter Fletcher, who we think is underrated out of the backfield. As long as they actually run the damn ball, I think Cody Fajardo could have a lot of success there. That could help. And also, GM Danny Machocha, just one real quick sec, said that they would be in the bidding to sign Brandon Zilstra, who would be a bona fide number one receiver. Now they have Greg Ellingson, who I think can still produce and some up and coming guys there. So he's going to have some targets. And most importantly, Hodge, as you noted, he's going to be much better protected. Five, Simon Fraser University football players have filed a lawsuit against the school after the program suddenly was suddenly eliminated in early April. A group of alumni is set to meet with SFU President Joy Johnson this week, while a number of other influential voices have spoken out in support of SFU reinstating their football program, including BC Lions owner Amar Dolman, CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi, the CFL Players Association, former Toronto Raptors head coach and Simon Fraser alum Jay Triano, and Winnipeg Blue Bombers President and CEO Wade Miller. Are you optimistic that SFU's football program can be saved? 
I don't know whether this program will be saved or not. What I can say is I'm extremely optimistic about the level of support, not just in the province of British Columbia, but in the football community across Canada at large that has rallied behind the Simon Fraser team and and these athletes over the last little bit since the university axed this program without any warning or uh, prior inclination. You know, it's, it's really been wonderful to see voices like Amar Doman step up and say, hey, if this is financial, I've got a check to write. Here it is, whatever you need to see people like Randy Ambrosi and the leadership of the CFLPA speak out in support of Simon Fraser University and try and get this thing changed. I don't know if we've had an issue, certainly in the recent past, in which you could get all these differing factions on the same side and united behind one idea, one initiative. I think there's a lot of support on the U sports side to potentially get something going where they could welcome in Simon Fraser in the future as a single sport member to play football in the Canada West. I think the university straight up lied about the possibility of that, that happening. We've seen the overwhelming support. You look, we're going to talk about it a little later in the show with the East West bowl coming up here, our annual U sports all-star game for for rising juniors they're inviting three simon fraser players this year as a olive branch as a show of support to that program and having them involved with all these other youth sports athletes that's tremendous in my mind and i think there's real movement and momentum behind that initiative my one caveat is i've yet to see anything from the leadership at simon fraser university whether it be president joy johnson or Athletic Director Teresa Hansen that gives any indication whatsoever that they'll be moved off their position. And that's greatly concerning to me because we all know that the motivations for this move were not what they said they were. And quite frankly, I think they were looking for any excuse to make this decision. They understood there would be blowback. I don't know if they understood there would be this much but they seem to be willing to weather the storm for as long as possible to get this goal that they've had in their mind to remove what I believe is, is just the financial cost and, and logistical challenges of football from underneath their umbrella to, to have that cease forever. That is their goal, and I don't know if they ultimately will – cower in the face of this tremendous pressure that is being placed on them they should they've made a terrible decision and i hope they realize their mistake and rectify it because there will be financial repercussions for the university in terms of the support they get and and the donations that the athletic department receives going forward but right now it's been all quiet on the western front up there on burnaby mountain and that scares me it doesn't seem like it was incredibly complex. Is that the quote that Teresa Hansen gave to you, John Hodge? What was it? Since her last episode, um, I mentioned on a, two weeks ago on the last episode of our podcast that we had requested an interview with SFU. That was granted after we recorded. And Teresa Hansen and I spoke on the phone the following day. So this would be 13 days ago on that would have been Thursday, April 6th. And she called it, yes, an incredibly complex process. That is the exact quote to apply to U Sports while admitting that she didn't apply and the university did not make a formal application to join Canadian University Sports. So it didn't seem incredibly complex for a U Sports sanctioned event to invite not one, not two, but three Simon Fraser players to it, obviously in a show of support, but. That was not incredibly complex. And it does not seem like Canada West, who put out a statement recently, believes it's incredibly complex to potentially have Simon Fraser play football in its conference. That statement, paraphrased and translated by Football Canada president Jim Mullen, was essentially, we're open to conversations about it. So you can't say it was incredibly complex if you didn't even have a conversation about it, there is no way 
to echo JC's sentiments here that Dr. Joy Johnson, the president at SFU, or Teresa Hansen, the athletic director, thought there would be this much blowback about canceling the program. I feel like they felt like they would pull the plug and that there would be a little bit of chatter and maybe some noise about it and then it would go away. But this noise and this movement to have this decision reversed is far, if not ever, going to go away. Now it's been taken to the Supreme Court in BC and our players claiming that verbal contracts were violated. And I do think they are going to have grounds on that statement. It's great that the university is going to honor their scholarships, but they have not committed to these student athletes the way that these student athletes have committed to Simon Fraser University as students and as athletes. And as a whole, I don't want to get too much on my soapbox here and sound like a stupid football jock, but in Canada, you cannot even argue that throughout the institutions that have football at their schools, that that is the number one sport, especially for the schools that are competitive and annually competitive, and that that can help schools gain a lot of national and even international attention and bring students to their programs. You see it in the NCAA all the times with schools that go on a run in March Madness, let's say, or who have sustained success like the University of Alabama or other programs in NCAA football. It brings students to your university, which helps fill your coffers with that money. So Simon Fraser University made a commitment to these student athletes that has now not been honored. And there was a video, guys, that surfaced on Facebook that was recorded during the meeting that Teresa Hansen had with the entire Simon Fraser University football team telling them what they actually apparently found out online, not from her first or anybody involved with the university. And she had no answers for any of the players' questions. If this was a long, well-thought-out decision, then she should have been able to stand there and take the heat from all of the student-athletes, answer all of their questions, put them at ease. They should have started a program for these student-athletes to help get them to different universities, be it in Canada or the NCAA, if this was something that they were really serious about doing. And I do 110% agree with JC about the university wanting to get rid of the financial commitment of football. But I think that's very short-sighted because other universities, and in this case, Simon Fraser, don't understand how much attention and how many dollars that can actually bring into the university. So this is Far from being dead, it's very clear that the players are going to fight for their right to play. And I believe they do have a right to do so because there has been a verbal contract and scholarship contracts actually signed for these student athletes. So I hope this decision is reversed quickly and that Teresa Hansen and Dr. Joy Johnson learn something from this. Because what happens a lot of times in these situations is people in power feel like they can do anything that they want and they don't necessarily have to have a great reason or reasons why. But this decision was clearly short-sighted, made way too quickly without proper reasoning behind it. And that's why this groundswell of support has come about. And I hope this decision does ultimately get reversed, mainly for the student-athletes that committed themselves, their lives, their blood, their sweat, their heart and soul on the football field and also as students in the classroom. I hope it gets reversed just for them. Well, and let's let's also make note that I asked point blank to Ms. Hansen if money was a factor and she vehemently denied that it was. She also said that uh, it was not uh, unprompted. She said this was also not a performance issue because we know that Simon Fraser has not won a lot of football games over the last few years. She said this was 100% about having a place to play. Now, getting back to the incredibly complex comment she made, one could argue that an athletic director's job is to do incredibly complex paperwork. And I think that criticism is what It has not been good at that in recent years, though, Hodge. Digging back to retirement at UBC, 
What? Hey, UBC lost an entire football season when she was AD because they didn't do the eligibility right. You remember that dunk? That maybe uh, when you were just starting out uh, calling games in the Canada West back when Billy Green was quarterback. Like that was Teresa Hansen as AD there. They've had problems with the swimming program. They've had, you know, problems with uh, with all sorts of teams during her tenure. Clearly, incredibly complex paperwork is not her forte, which to me, you know, that that's your job, right? So I, I don't That's It's disappointing to me. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with the situation yet, but I will say uh, I did ask point blank over the phone. Remember, this was just literally the day after this news broke. There have been far more groundswells of support for SFU's football program that have come up since then. I asked Teresa if the level of blowback had taken her by surprise. And she kind of paused for a moment and, and spoke to the disappointment that she knows people are feeling. Uh, so this is partly speculatory on my part, but I would say at least even from that interaction I had with her, I'm hoping to speak to her again, hopefully next week is I, I do think there was some sense of surprise. I don't think, I think, I think Dunk's assessment is accurate. And of course we are speculating, but I do think that the amount of support this program has garnered, not just locally, but, but nationally, and even in it, like, like there have been American media companies who have picked up on this story. This is now an international story. I do think that that has taken them by surprise. And that is why I am feeling more optimistic than ever that this program will be saved. I'm not saying that it's going to be saved, but I am more optimistic than I have been at any point that this will be reversed and we will see SFU play somewhere in 2023 and then play in U sports from 2024 onward, which uh, by the way, if that does happen, full applause to the people who have shown leadership to right this wrong, because at the end of the day, I think sometimes, at least in my tenure covering Canada or covering uh, football in Canada, be it pro amateur flag, whatever, I think sometimes these groups are too guilty of playing in their own little sandboxes and not wanting to interact with each other for a number of reasons. The primary, which of is likely ego, unfortunately. And I really appreciate the fact that we've seen leaders from all across this country in different factions, different groups get into the same sandbox, so to speak, and set aside the egos, set aside the differences and say, how do we get this done? And we've seen that, that, that leadership, like from people like Amar Doman, from people like Randy Ambrose, from the CFLPA, all, all the people who we listed. So we'll see. Remains to be seen. The story is not over again. SFU's alumni is talking to Joy Johnson this week, the team's or the, the university's president, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. It should be said real quickly that the Canada West has not yet finalized its schedule for the 2023 season. I mean, the 2023 season, like in theory, Simon Fraser has a place to play, right? They're, they're on the schedule for the Lone Star Conference. That affiliation does not end until 2024. Now, how long the Lone Star Conference and its teams are going to be holding those spots in that schedule not knowing whether SFU will be playing or not, that's another question entirely, right? We don't know how long they'll sit on their hands and wait without filling it with, you know, an exhibition game of some type against a different program, right? They'd be well within their rights to start searching for that. Hopefully this process legally and with the university can move fast enough that that's not the case. You play out your normal schedule in the Lone Star Conference this season, you move through the process with U sports. You start playing in Canada West in 2024. What I will say, and this is the last point on this topic. I know Hodge is going to be rolling his eyes already. I am hopeful (laughs) that if we can get this program back, it's a turning point because we know that for many years now, SFU has struggled on the field. It has struggled with a lack of support from its university. Now I mentioned Teresa Hansen's tenure at UBC. She was the AD there for a time. She was also uh, the assistant AD there for a time. During that era, UBC came very close to axing its football program. Very, very close. It had to get pushed back right from the brink. And because of that, alumni rallied their support behind. There was a huge influx of money in the form of the 13th Man Foundation and, and Mr. David Sadu which was injected into that program 
They brought in coach Blake Nell, and in that 2015 season, they won a Vanier Cup, and they've been very successful ever since. I hope that this goes beyond just saving this this program, and that if they can get it up and running again, these alumni who have now rallied around, it's a wake-up call for them. They begin to invest more readily into this program, and they can actually make it competitive wherever they're playing going forward. The BC Lions and Calgary Stampeders have unveiled new uniforms for the 2023 season, featuring black home jerseys and and fog away jerseys for the Lions and a a revamped away kit for the Stampeders. Are they hot or not? The Lions jerseys are straight hot fire. The only thing I don't like about it is there's a lack of orange in the home jerseys, but those fog away jerseys are different. They're unique. They stand out because they're not white and the home jerseys are sweet. That said, I just feel like it's missing some orange. It's too close to me or too similar. I should say to the Hamilton Tiger Cats home jerseys that are largely black with some yellow trimming or gold trimming, I should say, but I do really like the look. I like the innovation, the thought process behind it. And the stamps are sort of going back to an old tried and true look. JC, I think they would take issue with you and say that the home uniforms are a little different as well. And they've sort of updated their classic Labor Day uniforms. But the stamps uniforms are solid, although I would have the BC Lions at the top of my list league-wide with those super sharp jerseys. And I know some people are going to come at me and say, what about the Argos and the double blue and the Riders classic Labor Day unis that they like to wear? But the Riders, I think, should make those their permanent home jerseys. And the Argos jerseys, I think, could be much, much better. There's been multiple mock-ups of people online doing their thing with Argonauts uniforms. And I think they have a great color scheme. But I think their uniforms or their kits, as the kids are calling them these days, could be much better. The Lions are way ahead of the pack in that department compared to the rest of the league. Calling them kits? What are we in England? <laughs> kits is what the I don't think you're say, talking to Megan. Cool, it's hip. I I, fit, I don't think kid. you know many kids, Doug. Fit I can get it. <laughs> This it, we're, this is the soccer team. Come on now. The the word that I would use to describe BC's away jerseys rhymes with kit and fit. I don't <laughs> oh! think they're good. I don't think they're good. I I really like. What? Let's, let's start off with Calgary. Yeah, let's start off with Calgary. I like Calgary's away jerseys. If you go on our article um, entitled "Red Threads: Calgary Stampeders Unveil New Uniforms," the issue with Calgary, like like their home uniforms, were super slick. And their black outfits that they wear on Labor Day were also super slick. The issue was the away uniforms. They had these awkward black panels and these black collars. They they looked ugly. And I think that they really fixed those. I also love the subtle change of changing the face mask from black to white because we live in an era where the Ottawa Red Blacks exist. And red and black are their colors. They've been Ottawa's colors for well over a century. And the Stampeders, I think when the, the Rough Riders folded especially, and then the Renegades subsequently folded as well i think they started to commandeer that black a little bit and it's time they stay in their lane and they're doing a brilliant job of that like it's one thing to have a specialty black logo on labor day but the red and white is calgary it's a great color combination the home uniforms were slick the white face mask makes them better and their away uniforms are now just as good as the home to me calgary has a top three look now my issue with the bc lions is twofold one they are the only team in the CFL that wears orange, and they've all but eliminated it. They look like the Cleveland Browns. That was my first thought. Now, granted, I was on the West Coast when these no. were unveiled at 7 in the no. morning, and I was half asleep, but my first thought was, why is Lucky Whitehead wearing a Cleveland Browns jersey? And then I was like, oh, no, these are the these are the new jerseys that the Beast Lions are unveiling. I don't know why they've gotten rid of their orange jerseys. They were the best jerseys I think BC's ever had. These are a step. They still look good, but they're a step down for me. And then the away jerseys, why are you wearing gray? Like, I, I appreciate that the Lions wore gray during, like, the Louis Pasaglia era, the, the Damon, Allen, Damon Allen era. But th- this team has done such a great job of embracing the orange. Like, like there's no, give me the orange. Where's the orange? Gray, gray is not a pretty color. Where's the orange? I, I, so I, I don't like these BC. But on the road, they were well, white the, anyway. Well, fair enough. Maybe. Well, 
Well, what it says here is the home jersey is the blackout jersey and the away jersey is the fog jersey. So I don't think they have white jerseys anymore. I think it's black on the at home and gray on the road. And I don't like the gray on the road. I think it's silly. Where I need more orange. The, the, these to me are a step back from where they were. They're not <laughs> like the home jersey is nice, but it looks like the Cleveland Browns and the away jersey I don't like. So, no, it rhymes with kit. Okay, hold on. Before a West fit. Coast boy gets in here. The point I was trying to make is they wear white on the road anyways. There's not much orange in those uniforms. And the browns are brown and orange. They're not black and orange, so I think it's a sharper look. But I will agree with you, Hodge, that those orange jerseys were super sharp. I think the blacks could be a great alternate uniform. Yeah, but they already exactly. had the gunmetal that were swaggy. Yeah, keep the gunmetal. Like they had it and right. And I like that there's more here, but that orange jersey should be brought back is what you're saying. And then have the gun metal as the alternate. That that makes sense. I don't think this makes sense. Yeah, th- I, that's my point exactly, Don. Because I agree with Hodge. I'm not a huge fan of the Lions' new uniforms. Now, I'm generally not a huge fan of change to begin with. I like my regimented, structured system. Like I like <laughs> uniforms that never change over time. That That's what I'm a fan of. We're trying to change you into a morning but... guy, and there might be some success <laughs> there. So maybe you don't a mind change. Bit. No, it's it's got to be very structured for me. But my problem with this look really is with the home uniforms because you've gone with that black and orange look that primarily black. And it's just, it's not as good as your gunmetal black versions, which was something different to introduce, which were wildly loved by the fan base. I love those uniforms. And instead of just wearing those all the time, which I think people would have gotten behind, you've made a worse black jersey to try and capitalize on that. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you do something that people love worse and then wear that all the time? If you're going to go with the black, wear the gunmetals. Gunmetal and fog, like change your whole system, maybe. I can get behind that. But this, to me, it's it's just not a good look. I'm okay with the fog on the road. I'm not crazy about it. I think gray is sort of a dull lame color for a uniform i like how how crisp white looks um you know sometimes even wearing a white at home i think just really stands out and and looks really clean for a team so i'm not a huge fan of that either stampeders on the other hand i agree with you hodge as well like i think across the board the changes were very small to their home and their alternate um the away jersey is revamped i think it's clean and crisp right across the board there and i begrudgingly have to say i love their uniforms despite the fact that i do not love the team you know jc for a guy who said he didn't care much about uniforms you got some hot takes all right let me put you guys on the hot seat in one quick second here because i gotta say i think we're on the same page bc bring the orange uniforms back wear the gunmetal a little bit i do like the fog uniforms you guys like the white fresh white is really nice but for you two right now who has the best uniforms in the cfl you can pick one it can be a home jersey or a road jersey or pants and helmet combo whatever it is who's got the best uniform the bombers have the best uniforms their home uniforms oh yeah the, the the navy jerseys that i grew up with were awful and I really hate the fact that the 2007 Grey Cup immortalized those awful gold uniforms that the team wore. But the current look that they have now, which is a really nice balance of old and new, right? It's it's reminiscent of the Bombers that admittedly I was too young to watch live. But the 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 team the the teams that wore in the great you know the great teams of the 60s and the 80s that won all those Grey Cups that wore the royal blue. I think that the Bombers' home look is the slickest. My second favorite look would be the Riders Labor Day look. I think those jerseys are immaculate and it's a shame that their regular home jerseys are, let's be honest, they're like mediocre at best. They should really go back full time to the Labor Day Labor Day look. So Hodge, you're gonna be called the Homer and get even more blowback for people can call me a Homer. I, I'm right. That I just I'm right. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that I'm wrong just to not be called a Homer. I'm right. That but but I I, I will say I think that the Stamps home look is right there with Winnipeg's now. I think I think the Stamps have gone from 10 years ago being towards the bottom to towards the top. And um, I think the Ticats home look is really slick as well because they pair the black jerseys with the yellow pants. I want yellow. The Ticats are yellow. That's my problem with BC. There's no orange. I want orange. 
My least favorite are the Thai Cats gray uniforms. I absolutely hate those with a burning passion, and I don't understand why anyone likes. Would you like the BC gunmetal? Make it make sense, bro. The the gunmetal looks cool because it's gunmetal is like black. I just don't like gray. Maybe that's the thing. I just no gray mm. whatsoever. Gray is a lame color. I I would say my top two uh, are basically the same as Hodges. I think Winnipeg looks really sharp. I I love those Labor Day looks for the Riders. The gunmetal is up there for me. In the three, it used to be for me Edmonton's because it was iconic. It was unchanged. It was so perfect. But the new uniforms that they have look kind of cheap to me. So they're no longer up in the upper echelon. Ouch. I should say we are going to be opening this up to all of our contributors. We are planning now that all the, the jerseys seem to be locked in for this year. We're not aware of any changes coming to any teams that, that of course, could change. But we will be ranking all nine uniforms heading into the 2023 season and doing so not just as us three but as all of our contributors at three down nations so stay tuned for that like a uniform power ranking uniform power ranking exactly i should say the jerseys are all right but i think it's unquestioned that the best helmet is the argos boat logo to me that's just so so nice i wish what i really wish is that the lions would go back to the old like mountain lion with a paw in the football look. I'm I'm a big fan of that, to be honest. By the way, for our listeners, before we started recording, JC did not want to talk about uniforms because he said it's not interesting. Now he, he won't shut up about any it. opinions. <laughs> doesn't have any guys. We really want. Do we really you want to talk about jerseys? Into this. He wanted to talk. He he wanted to talk about global kickers for thirty minutes instead. I did not. Okay, that last Yikes. part was a lie, but everything else was true. I will say, if we're talking about slick helmets. I thought the alternate helmets that the Auto Red Blacks wore this past season were so Ooh, nice. The really big those R should be their permanent helmets. Like the triple that was a sli- that's my top helmet in the league. And maybe I'm a little biased because it's new, and we tend to maybe have more of an appreciation for things that are new than things that have been around for 50 years. But when I saw that Red Blacks helmet, I was like, "Wow, that like their normal helmet's fine, but like this is a big upgrade." That helmet was sick. If the Red Blacks wear that helmet all the time, that would be the number one helmet in the CFL. I think the Alouettes jerseys could be much, much better. I have a feeling they're going to be down near the bottom in our uniform power rankings. And I agree with you, Hodge, on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers jerseys. Those home jerseys look super sharp. They've done a really good job with them. I think the numbers could be a little bit better if I had to quibble with them. But it's a classic look, I think, to JC's point with the old Edmonton football team uniforms that – they were not they were not changed for a long time before they had the antlers on the helmets and took off the double E. That was a, obviously a huge mistake and got people fired there. And I think Winnipeg has done a great job tying the past to the present and making it look super sharp. Any more opinions? I think I'm looking at you, JC. Yes, I got one. I, I think I think Montreal's jerseys are overhated. I, I don't think they're at the top tier of the CFL, but I see people bagging on their logo and bagging on their uniforms. I think the uniforms are nice. I really do. And not top three. But I think yeah. they're nice, and and that seems to be an unpopular opinion. I didn't realize that, at least from from what I've garnered online, a lot of people seem to not like them, which is wild because I I I thought that like the the jerseys that they wore during the Anthony Calvillo era were awful, like the silver helmets. Oh, yeah. Like I I think I think the the new version is way better. But again, a lot of people don't seem to feel that same way, which is interesting. JC, you good? Yeah, I'm all locked. I didn't want to talk about this to begin with. You forced me into this. You brought it upon yourself. You didn't force you to know that. You could have sat there silently. Nothing. Instead, you went on for ten minutes about all kinds of all kinds of Jersey talk, which we like because people like Jersey talk. Move on. Let's go. <laughs> he had to bounce it out because he gave BC some love for Vernon Adams Jr. earlier, and now he's evenly balanced. I like it. U Sports unveiled the rosters for this year's East-West Bowl, which is set for Saturday, May 13th at Ron Joy Stadium on McMaster University's campus. I once played in the same game at the same campus, man. It was a great week there. This game will feature players going into their fourth years of eligibility and could be eligible if eligible, if I can speak English, if they don't defer for the 2024 CFL draft. Who is the one player you're most excited to watch? And when I say one, I mean one. I'm going to pick Nathan Demolin-Duguay out of Laval. I apologize for that pronunciation. First team All-Canadian at tackle this last year. 
these this and by the way, for the uninitiated, the East West Bowl gives CFL teams a chance to evaluate talent heading into their last year of U Sports football. So the players who are participating in this event will be eligible for the 2024 CFL draft. We already know the 2023 CFL draft is not deep along the offensive line. The 2024 CFL draft is rumored to be very deep. And a player like Demelon Duguay, I think, has the opportunity to head up a very strong group. So I'm going to be watching the offensive line primarily because I think there's going to be a ton of first-round picks in that group. The one I'm most excited to watch, Demelon Duguay. For me, I'm I'm going to pull out one of those Simon Fraser players that received an invite that we talked about previously. Jarrell Cummings, he's a kid from, from North Vancouver who's started right from his freshman year at SFU and was a GNAC all-star back when they played in the Great Northwest Athletic Conference before that folded. Has been very effective against very good competition at the Lone Star Conference level and will we'll now get a chance to do an apples to apples comparison against some very talented U sports receivers. Typically when we talk about defensive backs, specifically corners that are top prospects, we look at guys who have incredible length or size like uh, Sir man, Harrison Bagayogo in this year's CFL draft. Gerald Cummings doesn't really have that. He's about 5'10, 185. So an event like this, if he can show he's truly as locked down as he's been at times in college against tough top competition, he can really up his stock. And I think he's an incredibly talented player, a natural cover man, really excited to see him perform against the best. Super jacked up to see Nick Weeb. I've been covering this guy for a couple of years now on the Canada West Football Showcase, the outstanding linebacker for the University of Saskatchewan. He was a transfer from the University of Oregon, lined up in practice against Penne Sewell, who was a high draft pick in the NFL. I think he was selected by the Detroit Lions, third overall. Is that right, JC? Yep. Uh, Detroit Lions. Boom. Yes. Yeah, that's the- was the third overall that year. I don't remember that. I think he was. Was it fifth? Yeah, it was fifth. I think. I think. I think it was sixth. You're, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna Google this right now. My money is on sixth. He was a, fir- a top ten pick for the Detroit Lions. He was picked seventh. We were all wrong. Okay, seventh. Seventh. But all regardless, of well, at least we got pick. the fact checkers out. We got the fact checkers. Thanks, out. Stat Boy. So Weeb is an outstanding linebacker with the Huskies and a guy that depending on how fast he runs, and I think he's actually going to run the 40 really well, is definitely going to be in first round consideration. And depending on the class next year could be first overall consideration. That's really rare, but this dude I think can start right away coming out of the university of Saskatchewan. He's been exposed to that high end level in the NCAA played in some big time games with the ducks and was about to see the field there, but then wanted to come back to Canada for family reasons. And the University of Calgary, which he grew up very close to, was in the mix, but liked the vibe around the University of Saskatchewan. They are now the back-to-back Canada West Conference champions and were really close to Vanier, you know, a couple of years in a row. And I think that's what he's going to be shooting for again, obviously in 2023. But Weeb is absolutely outstanding. This guy just oozes being a pro. He's locked in. He knows the position so well. He can run. He can tackle. He can cover as well. He's a very athletic linebacker. And if Weeb's listening to this, I want him to run fast because I'm a personal fan and I'll show a little bit of bias there of this dude because I spend so much time around him. But if he runs fast, I believe he will be in contention to be the first overall pick in the CFL draft. And if he runs well, I think he could potentially get NFL attention, which would be rare for a Canadian linebacker. I think the last linebacker from a U sports school to get real NFL attention would have been the 109th Grey Cup MVP and MVC Enoch Mwamba. Well, Corey Greenwood would be in that category as well. Um, and it's not it's not that unlikely that, that linebackers have gone first. Enoch Mwamba did it in 11. Jordan Williams did it in 2020. And Tyrell Richards did it in 2022. That's just off the top of my head. So crazier things have happened. I will say, to push back on that, I think you're underestimating how good this draft class is going to be in 2024. There's a lot of legitimate NCAA starters who are going to be just past the NFL free agent mark in my mind 
that will be in contention for that first overall spot. But Weeb, the work ethic is there. I mean, he walked on at Oregon. This was not a scholarship guy. He made his own way there. There, he walked onto the fe- uh, onto the team, and he made his way onto the field, actually making an impact for the Ducks. So, I wouldn't put anything past him. Yeah, I'm not saying he's going to go first overall, but he should be in contention. Alouette's GM Danny Machocha said he's more than convinced that a CFL expansion team would work in Quebec City. Do you agree? I would like to preface preface this by saying that in my Deep in my heart, I would love for a CFL team to work in Quebec City. It's one of my favorite places in not just Canada, but the entire world. I think the location, the history, I'd love to see it happen there. I don't think it ever will. To me, there are far too many red flags that are really easy to ignore if you just point to the success of college football. Everyone likes to talk about how great Laval is, how they get 18,000 people out to U sports games, which is about, you know, 16,000 more than most schools in Canada. Uh, But I don't think that translates. There's a cultural rift there. It's not as attached to the CFL as it is in most of English speaking Canada. Uh, They have identified very deeply with their local Um, university product and that's why that's been successful but if you bring in a team that is largely english speaking which it would be from a a league that has long been viewed as an anglophone institution into a city where 90 percent of the population speaks french as a as their first language and 70 percent don't speak English at all, I don't think that works. I think you're going to encounter a whole bunch of hurdles, a whole bunch of pushback. And I think the history indicates this, right? There have been two CFL games in Quebec City already. And we've talked about expansion with Halifax and how successful Touchdown Atlantic has been in terms of attendance and selling out. Well, two preseason games in Quebec City, one in 2005, over a decade ago now, it had about 10,000 people out. And that was with a big push of support from the Rouge or. But the last one in 2015 only had about 4,000, right? That's, that's not an indicator to me that this is going to be a successful endeavor if the CFL were ever to go to Quebec City. So to me, it's just not a scenario where if I was the league, I want to get involved in. Well, people need to know about the Laval University program, the Rouge Or is it's not like any other program in U Sports. It is run like a business. There is a president of the football program, Jacques Tongue. There are numerous corporate sponsors for the Laval University football program. It is run like a business, and that's part of the reason why the program has been so successful and gotten some of the top talent in Quebec and pulled some of the best players from Montreal as well in that battle that they have with the University of Montreal is due to the way that it's run. Glenn Constantin, the head coach there, has done a remarkable job of sustained success. And I've been in Quebec City a number of times to cover the Laval Rouge or, or cover Vanier Cups. There's only been a few that have happened there where the Laval Rouge or haven't been in it. And you can see how tied in the people are to the Laval Rouge Or. So they have done a wonderful job of marketing the program, but I think most importantly, treating it like a business. I think some CFL teams could honestly learn some things and specifically some U sports teams could learn some things from that approach. I'm not saying that the other U sports teams around the country should do it the same way, but something similar could be beneficial for those programs. So that is the major difference here. When people talk about Quebec City, you can't just point to the Rouge Or and say how well they're doing and the attendance that they have and think that that's going to directly translate into attendance for this hypothetical Quebec City CFL team. Now, it should be said, I think before we start talking about expanding to Quebec City, 
we need the CFL to be running like a well-oiled machine with the nine franchises it currently has. And I do think that's possible in the relatively near future because I think CFL franchises are currently under the most stable and well-backed ownerships or ownership groups or owners, I should say, to put it into English, across the league that the league has ever seen. So I think the league is trending in a positive direction that way. And Halifax, to me, would be the most natural for a 10th team. So let's do 10 really well, or even start with nine really well, before we start talking about expanding to 12, like Randy Ambrosi is out here trumpeting. Now it's the offseason, and they probably want to keep some heat off things like spending millions of dollars on CFL 2.0. Sorry, JC, that hasn't translated into the success that they thought. And the fact that there hasn't been an American television deal at least announced yet from the league's perspective. So I think some of it is a diversion tactic. But if we're going to talk about it from an analytical perspective, which is what we're doing right here, right now on this podcast, then let's have nine teams do really well before we look elsewhere. Do I think a CFL team could be viable in Quebec City? I don't think it's going to be an easy road for a lot of the reasons JC laid out and specifically because it's going to be a competition with Laval. I don't think Laval would be on board to help a CFL team unless you went to Mr. Tangay and the powers that be at Laval and made a business case for those entities working together to benefit people on both sides of that relationship. It's time for Hodges' heritage moment. On this day in 1998, the Indianapolis Colts selected South African-born and Vancouver-raised receiver Jerome Pathon in the second round of the NFL draft. Pathon. The six-foot, 195-pound target. Pathon. My apologies. The six-foot, 195-pound target transferred to Washington for his sophomore year after being named the U Sports Rookie of the Year with Acadia in 1993. Pathan played eight seasons in the NFL with the Colts, Saints, Seahawks, and Falcons, and made 260 receptions for 3,350 yards and 15 touchdowns. He is tied with Nikhil Harry, the 32nd overall pick in the 2019 NFL Draft, for the highest selected Canadian receiver NFL, ever in NFL Draft history. I know JC's too young to know, or at least remember, Jerome Pathan playing. Dunk, what do you remember about Jerome Pathan? Dude, Jerome Pathan was a smooth-moving receiver. And let's remember, as you mentioned, Hodge, he was from Acadia University and rose to prominence in the NFL and was part of some dynamic offenses at the time. So it shows yet again, it needs to be reiterated to, I think, a lot of people that when you go out to watch U-Sports games or back in the day when Pathan played, probably would have been CIAU if it wasn't CIS – that there is elite talent on the field there that you can witness in your own backyard. Payton was a great receiver, if I could say his name right, and a very intriguing story in terms of him going from Acadia to the NFL. Yeah, one of the greatest Canadian NFL players of all time. I like it, JC. This guy's a history buff. He freaking knows everything. Let's go to the three-minute drill. The Riders have booked Kim Mitchell to play their home opener this season. Is that a popular choice, do you think, among Rider Nation, Hodge? I think it's popular for people who are, like, older than my parents. That's cool for them. I don't know about anybody <laughs> under the age of 40. That's the issue. I was going to say, I, I, I am, I'm notorious for liking older things. I have no idea who Kim Mitchell is. Just no clue. Yeah, I, ha- I had to Google who Kim Mitchell was. <laughs> Canadian twins Jason Sidney Brown went through a pre-draft visit with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Which brother do you think will get taken first in the 2023 NFL draft? It's going to be Sidney Brown just based on the values of the position. People really like his versatility as a safety and all his athletic ability. Chase Brown, they're high on him as well, but he's a running back, right? He's likely to fall into day three, round four, round five. That's the sweet spot for guys like him. Sidney Brown has much more positional value to NFL teams. He'll get taken in round two or round three. The Hamilton Tiger Cats are adding Darren Flugey to the club's wall of honor at Tim Hortons Field. Is he a worthy selection? He definitely is. He's a bit of a quieter guy and didn't really like the spotlight during his career or post-career. I know sometimes the Ticats have, I don't want to say had trouble, but just 
haven't been able to track him down because he doesn't like the spotlight. But I think this is very much deserved and a great thing for Ticats fans, even though Darren Flutie doesn't necessarily embrace the spotlight. The Montreal Alouettes signed kicker David Cote and punter Joseph Zema to contract extensions through 2024. Are those smart moves? They are. Kickers are at a premium right now with the spring leagues down south chewing them up. We've seen that with teams in Canada struggling. Joseph Zema, I think, is really underrated as a punter. Finished third league-wide in net yards last year. This is definitely a good move. JC, you released your all-time CFL to NFL team. Who do you think is the best deep cut who made your list? Well, there's some really good ones, and I encourage everyone to check it out. I'll highlight two former BC Lions who are unique because they played entirely different positions in the CFL than they did in the NFL. Bob Jeter was the backup running back for the Lions behind the great Hall of Famer Willie Fleming. Signed with the Green Bay Packers, got converted to cornerback, ended up being a two-time All-Pro and a cornerstone on the team that won the first two Super Bowls. And then a decade later, the Lions signed a receiver and kick returner from Georgia named Jake Scott. He ends up getting drafted by the Miami Dolphins. They make him a free safety. He goes to five straight Pro Bowls and then becomes the MVP of the Super Bowl for that 1972 Miami's Dolphins team that went undefeated. Truly a remarkable story on both fronts. Both of those guys deserve mention. Ticats head coach Orlando Steinhauer said he won't guarantee a starting spot for Simone Lawrence, the team's all-time leading tackler. Do you think Simi HOV will be in the starting lineup in 2023? I do believe Simi Hub will be in the starting lineup, and I think Steinauer just wants Simone Lawrence to prove that he's healthy after some injuries kept him out of a handful of games last year and that he can get back to the form that he showed just a couple of years ago. So I think it's more about motivation here as to why Steinauer is not willing to guarantee a starting spot. He wants to create competition everywhere, and that's what coaches should do. The Riders have signed Kean Schaefer-Baker to a two-year contract extension, keeping him in Saskatchewan through 2025. Is that a calculated move for the star receiver? Yes, and this, I think, comes into the play of the CFL allowing players to try the NFL every offseason, right? We used to see players always want to be pending free agents because they could always get a look down south. That's no longer the case. You could sign a long-term deal in the CFL and still go to the NFL. So this is, I think, a win-win. Schaefer Baker gets the opportunity to go down south if that arises, but the Riders also long-term have locked up arguably their best weapon on offense. The Ottawa Red Blacks signed 2021 CFL draft pick Keegan Markgraf. Could that change their plans for this year's CFL draft? Yeah, I think it does. Keegan Markgraf for the young initiated was a tremendous collegiate long snapper down at Utah. He comes up to the CFL now, fills an immediate need for the Red Blacks. There's a couple very talented long snappers available in this year's CFL draft. Now, I think they're probably out of the market for any of those guys. But Cloud Bethel Thompson led the New Orleans Breakers to a 22-15 victory over the Pittsburgh Maulers in his first USFL start, throwing for 302 yards and one touchdown. Is that impressive? It is the game-winning TD, by the way, JC. And it's impressive because it's the first game of a season. Usually offenses are behind the defenses, but McLeod Bethel-Thompson looked like he threw in rhythm and was in sync with his receiving group. Veteran receiver RJ Harris announced his retirement following 49 games with the Ottawa Red Blacks. Was that a surprise? I mean, it, it's unfor- I mean, I, I guess it's not really a surprise. He didn't really have a place to play. Clearly, he wants to move on. One thing I will say is that though Harris was raised in the U.S., he was born in Würzburg, Germany. And so if the CFL had not insisted that American players who were born overseas stayed American when they introduced the global initiative, R.J. Harris should realistically be a global in the CFL, which means he'd probably still be under contract. But yeah. that's a story. It's an American military member. That's not. No, it's not. That's not how it works. He's an American military. It is how it works. He was born in Germany. No, that's how it works. American citizen. He's not a German citizen. He's an American citizen. He was born in Germany. 
American military member. This is there's a whole different structure. If you're born in a country, this is a, this is a whole thing. Doesn't that make you a citizen of that given country? Not if you're born on the base. The bases are enclaves of the country. Like the there's a, you go you paying American dollars. There's a supermarket. It's it's little small town America in the middle of Germany. It's massive. All right. Well, we'll see. I believe maybe, you. maybe we'll have to interview <laughs> R.J. Harris and get all the details. With that said, we thank you as always for listening to the Three Donation Podcast. We'll see you next week for another episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.